0: Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil and this is
1: Emily-Kate Stevens.
0: Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID.
1: And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions.
0: How was your week?
1: So today it's taken me three hours to be able to sit up to talk to you, but I thought it would be interesting to have this conversation right now, just so that people know that every time we record, we get up and do this and we do our interviews. We are not well people, but we are really, really trying to do our best here. I have a migraine today and I honestly thought I was having a brain aneurysm when I woke up. It was literally like something was piercing through my brain. It's subsided a bit now. But this is off the back of, I went on holiday for a week and went to a surf and yoga retreat and should come back super zen. But what I did is I came back and I had the biggest crash that I have had in so long. I I feel like I felt in the summer of 2021, I feel utterly awful at the moment. Yeah, perhaps I overdid it because I thought that I was incrementally getting better. Mm. I wasn't expecting it to be as bad. And as you know, with the physical crash, I think particularly after periods of wellness, it it is incredibly difficult to cope with mentally because however depressing this gets and however much this gets, I think we both still try to hold out hope that somehow we're going to turn a corner and this is going to get better. And then when you have these kind of crashes, I don't I don't know if it is. I don't know if if there is any progression
0: two things really one when you when you said we have periods of wellness the wellness as we say every week is limited to feeling better but with x y and z symptoms
1: yeah and still such confines on our life compared to how we lived our lives before
0: yeah and the other part is i've been really devastated to see you this bad
1: yeah it's not fun
0: now we're both crying
1: (laughs) (laughs) but I guess people need to know it because we always try to come on here and bring like a game and be really you know sort of chipper about everything and try and bring people up and, and that is one of our intentions but it's not it's really not easy
0: No, and it's not easy to feel that way yourself, but it's also not easy to see someone you love feel like that. No. Anyway. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I made you cry and I'm crying myself, but
1: whatever. How was your week? Tell me it was better than mine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My week has been okay. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I mean, it's been okay in that I've been walking a lot getting my steps in. You normally are much more ahead of me in terms of doing any kind of physical activity.
1: Yeah, look where that puts me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, the last few weeks I've felt well enough to do long walks every day and even do a little bit of light jogging. Have you kept up your running? I have until, obviously, the last two days when I've got my period, which are, sorry for the men amongst us. Don't be sorry for them. They all need to know about it. I know, it's pretty devastating. There are two or three days out of the month where I'm completely incapacitated. Covid has made them so much worse Yeah, and that I'm in the middle of one of those days, so I'm not walking dope-top, on um, codamol basically, to get through the next day or two,
1: but then hopefully I'll feel okay. Yeah, but it must leave you depleted every month, I think it does for both of us, it just completely strips your system of any reserves.
0: It does, but I like I said, feeling well is one thing, but feeling whole is something quite different, so I've been feeling well and managing to do more, but I've also developed swelling, so I wake up in the morning and I can't get my wedding ring on, so I sleep
1: without it on now and I take it off and put it on in the morning. Mm. Fingers are swollen. I know that kind of inflammation. Some days I wake up, I can't move my hands because they're so inflamed.
0: That's new. And I know that we spoke. I I called to tell you that I had some vibrations, which I'd never had before, (laughs) in my hip, and I thought it was like I was wearing some kind of buzzer and I kept looking for something in my pocket. But it wasn't constant, but now I have an understanding of what people say when they say they have these body vibrations. Yeah. Deep in my hip, it was really, really odd, the oddest sensation. Thank God it's not constant, because I'm sure it would be very irritating.
1: I think it's exhausting as well. Can you imagine the amount of energy that it's taking for that to go through your body? I think it must increase exhaustion. Yeah. Which could lead us nicely onto this week's guest talking about exhaustion and how so much of your body is impacted by non-restorative sleep or lack of sleep.
0: Yes I really loved the interview this week because it gives you a solid metric with which to use to do your daily life. You know we always talk about pacing and it's always been some arbitrary measure for me. It's not
1: Really tangible. And this week's guest? Dr. Raul Garbo. And he is the Director of Cardiac and Wellness Integration at Virginia Commonwealth University.
0: And he spent a lot of time looking at brain injury and concussion, and he works in a a unit that
1: deals a lot with brain injury. Uh, And autonomic rehabilitation after that kind of traumatic injury. But also a lot in POTS and chronic conditions.
0: It gives you a real insight into what heart rate variability is, how we can use it and how we can measure it.
1: What are the conditions that historically... You have been looking at. Obviously, we're focused on long COVID, but if we can just take it back to a little of your background in terms of the center.
2: Sure. VCU is one of only five model systems for both spinal cord injury rehabilitation and traumatic brain injury rehabilitation. Rehabilitation physicians are generally a jack of many trades and often not the ultimate expert in any one topic, but comfortable enough in orthopedics, neurology, cardiology, et cetera. I don't just stick to cardiology literature on heart rate variability or uh, immunology and so forth. So I think that's part of the translational approach. And so I've done rehabilitation for chronic pain, addiction, every disorder, every demographic the three most common patients that I'm seeing are a lot of concussion, a lot of young hypermobility, POTS ladies, long COVID. And then there's a huge variety. It could be cancer, fatigue. There's a wide variety.
1: M E C F S.
2: Yes. Oh, absolutely.
1: And would you say the long COVID people that you see, it tends to be dysautonomia, long COVID manifesting itself in a dysautonomia?
2: Yes. I'll have better success with a person's expectations if they're willing to target the fatigue aspect and put a little placeholder maybe on pain. Because if we target fatigue, I like to say, if I could hand you anything right now, I would hand you three months of decent sleep.
1: That's what Nori needs. Hmm.
2: And what we see with concussions and so forth They'll have a dozen symptoms, but they all have circadian dysregulation. And if you're dealing with a dozen symptoms, if we can get that under control, most of those symptoms, you still have the hardware problems, but they go from unmanageable to manageable, right? Your tinnitus might become less bothersome. Your headaches might become less frequent. You you haven't healed at all. but So the upper biomarker, the most important symptom target for me, isn't post-exertional malaise it is non-restorative sleep that is uh for me the symptom target
1: and is that across all three all of those conditions yes wow we spoke last week to someone where we spoke about long COVID people having success in concussion clinics what's that similarity is that the similarity the sleep problem
2: So in the concussion literature, you'll come across things that they'll talk about the the energy crisis after trauma. In long COVID, you'll hear, right, the cytokine storm. I take a different approach. I take an approach of what do I know for sure? So a researcher takes approach, I don't know anything. Let me have a completely open mind. But when I'm trying to... implement this model with someone clinically, I need to know what do I know for sure. And this is what I know for sure about all three of those populations, that you have a default sympathetic tone and a concussion or an infection can thrust you into your default persistent sympathetic activation. I'm very particular about vocabulary and it's freeing up if i can break the conversation away from anxiety bipolar disorder blah 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 all those tags because you have plenty of people that will say they're not anxious and they'll fill out their anxiety scales pretty low but they feel it physiologically so hypervigilance, vigilance hyper arousal persistent sympathetic activation is the term that i've landed on and so it is not overstimulation because I know top flight athletes, they can handle overstimulation. It's really the persistence, the nonstop default persistent sympathetic activation that has physical consequences, palpitations, tachycardia, etc or emotional and behavioral anxiety, racing brain, all kinds of things. So that is the threat. Um, Sometimes we don't always have the answer of why somebody was knocked into persistent sympathetic activation.
0: Before we go down this path too far, for our listeners, can you just explain the difference between sympathetic and parasympathetic and what actually it is?
2: So the way you can think of it is there's a priority for uh, survival than, air quote time, uh, living, right, living life to the fullest. Today's conversation, we're going to talk about people who are not an actual day-to-day life-threatening threat, okay? But they're physiologically stuck in that, and what are the consequences? And that is the sympathetic nervous system, and that is fight, flight, or freeze. Let's keep it simple in the simple emotional part of your brain. I'm either going to punch you, I'm going to run, or I'm going to play dead. And for a possum, playing dead works. For a mother raccoon, fighting works. For a deer running works for them and the situations can change, but let's keep it simple. And you can get stuck in that part of your brain. So that's sympathetic. I don't call the parasympathetic relaxation. I call it recovery. So threat mode is very, very powerful. You don't care about efficiency right now to survive, but it's really inefficient. And if you are stuck there day in and day out, there are exhaustion consequences. And what we know about concussions is you are not dipping into parasympathetic recovery sleep. You're going to hear me use the word fibromyalgia fair amount because we can't ignore the decades of research. The fibromyalgia literature for decades, 40 years, says they have non-restorative sleep. And I think I can make a case that the best biomarker for physiological sleep is the heart rate variability that we'll talk about. So you have to have parasympathetic sleep. So my thesis is that they have glitchy autonomic software due to parasympathetic sleep dysfunction worsened by persistent sympathetic activation or persistent threat mode. That's my thesis to develop this model to help you help yourself. That's another thing that is in my approach. It always has to be about you helping yourself and the medications are going to be physiological assists to what you're doing, not me take control and you be this biochemical bag. So this is a physiological model and it is trying to develop ways that you can learn to negotiate energy and restoration. And then when I do prescribe, it is in a way to support that. That When you exercise, I will want to know, if I asked you right now, you're going to do six minutes on a recumbent bike moderately. You may or may not be ready for that, but what is it about that that worries you? Is it palpitations? Is it the post-exertional malaise or is it orthostatic hypotension? You know, I need to know what is it about the upper part of the load that worries you of just even having that conversation.
1: The, uh, as in what concerns you mentally before you do it?
2: Yeah, what, what is your problem? Is it, is it palpitations and fast heart rates? Or is it the fatigue? What is it that keeps you from doing? So- and why I say six minutes is because we do know in concussion literature and so forth, that you can stave off dementia with as little as six minutes, three times a week of moderately vigorous exercise. We'd like to get people to get to 20 to 30 minutes, right? But six minutes is an initial tier for me to find out where you are in the functional, if you could even handle six minutes of moderately vigorous recumbent bike. And that tells me that some people can't, You know, they can't do the laundry.
0: So your position at VCU is to try and treat the physiological symptoms. You're not really interested in why the sympathetic nervous system has crashed.
2: So some, right? But as you found in your podcasts, um, <laughs> you know, I really appreciate one of your previous Uh, speakers, Leonardi, he spoke of T-cells in a loving way, in a way that he could see that they were not, right? I don't have no idea what a T-cell would look like in a microscope. That's his, but he does talk about T-cell exhaustion. And so what I am about is a couple steps above that in the cascade is how are those T-cells repairing themselves? How are they challenged and recovering? And so I am addressing that because the uppermost biomarker, the cholinergic inflammatory pathway, heart rate variability and the vagus nerve and those are above that. So when he talks about the cutting of the brake lines, and this is one of the little paradigm shifts, people present as overly sympathetic threat mode. And we see that in tachycardia. And so we just start treating them. But what he's saying and what I'm saying is it's a cutting of the brake lines. So when the car goes off of the track, yes, you might have been driving too fast. Yes, your foot has been on the gas pedal for way too long. But maybe it's also the brakes, which is the non-restorative sleep.
0: That's a brilliant analogy.
2: And it's very important Sometimes I'll I'll give a quiz question on who the first billionaire athlete was. And I'll say the first name was Michael. It's not Michael Jordan. It's Michael Schumacher, the Formula One driver. Mm. And he destroyed the Formula One circuit because he was driving with two feet. And this is a fundamental concept about the autonomic nervous system that people don't get. That they can be two independent levers. So when you present with nonstop throttle, anxiety, palpitations, tachycardia. Part of that problem is the parasympathetic brakes are thin. So what I'm trying to do is shift the focus on the way you're presenting with so much energy, so much tachycardia, so much orthostasis. Yes, those are important, but let's not neglect the health of the parasympathetic system. Let's track it. Let's teach you how to make your energy allocation choices based off of that. So it's a two-footed Michael Schumacher driving. And when he goes into a turn, he keeps his foot on the gas and keeps a little bit of brake. And then he releases the brake on the second half of the turn. Whereas the other racers, full gas, slight delay, and then brake slight delay, gas. He's going in and then he lets off the brake and he full throttle again. And so he catches a little bit every turn. That's what life is, right? (laughs) Curveballs. And he he became famous on a rainy racetrack in Spain. And that's what COVID is. (laughs) Two-footed lever, not balance. When you see the word balance, watch what your mind does. It thinks of a linear teeter-totter. Mm -hmm. 80 20 20 80 50 it's not it's two levers your foot is stuck on the gas and your brake pads are thin we need to start with the breathing applying the brakes again the type of breathing i recommend so the another wording for me is instead of a autonomic balance problem you have parasympathetic depletion
0: and can that be fixed
2: well cutting right to the chase here <laughs> so, there are many covid unknowns. The answer I believe is is yes, some people have so much damage that it may not be not for everybody. However, the answer is yes, I say this constantly to my concussion patients, and we know the brain is much more plastic the ability to heal than we knew decades ago so Your brain can heal with decent food, decent sleep, and decent exercise. And where are we struggling on that? The brain and the nervous system can heal with decent food, decent sleep, and decent exercise. Now, I am not the decent food expert. I'm not the immunologist. But I am the decent sleep and the decent exercise.
1: Okay. So, how do you... Start off assessing someone's heart rate variability. We have touched on heart rate variability with a couple of our previous guests, but can you explain to us what and how (laughs) you assess the heart rate variability and what it means? Because actually, it's almost counterintuitive in terms of its numbers scale.
2: First, let's talk a little bit about symptoms. A couple things I do. I want to know, and I can give you reassurance. Is I'll ask about brain fog, and I will break it into cognitive fatigue and everything else. If I can get a history that you can be sharp under optimal circumstances for a short period of time, I will call that cognitive fatigue. And I give you reassurance that if we address the physiological fatigue, your cognitive fatigue shall improve. And it's what we can target anyway. So if there are memory and other attentional problems that are left over, this is still the target. The answer to cognitive fatigue isn't two hours of Sudoku. That isn't the answer. It is restorative sleep. So I want to elicit a history of non-restorative sleep. If you can get a lot of sleep and you still are physically exhausted, and again, what are the symptoms of that exhaustion? Is it tachycardia, et cetera? So focusing on non-restorative sleep your brain only rinses at night, and it restores at night, and it repairs at night, and it takes weeks, not a night or two. So I want to get you focused in on assessing that physiologically. Now, sleep scores, first of all, let's talk about those. That is actigraphy. That is wrist or finger movement. That data is not terrific. And even if they call it sleep quality, it's still just sleep quantity. Okay? That is not the nugget. My athletes don't value sleep many times. so I need the actigraphy to, to recognize, look, you're only allocating five hours of sleep. No wonder your performance dropping. But that's typically not the case in this population. They value sleep. They just stink at it. Um, <laughs> so sleep scores not a game changer. Actigraphy, not great data, nor is it a game changer in this population. The sleep studies mostly are looking for obstructive sleep apnea. That's important, but is not particularly a game changer for this population either. So I call it physiological sleep from the neck down. We want to target that. Let me backtrack again. You asked me about the correlation with concussion. It's neurovascular coupling. With the concussion, the infection, the neurologic and the vascular system have become uncoupled, and you're now in persistent threat mode. I want you to think of heart rate as a measure of load. And if one of you has a nighttime heart rate of 80, and one of you has a nighttime heart rate of 60, we know the 60 is more efficient, doing the same amount of work at night, and we know that that person's more fit than the other. And what do we know along with that? We know that person is more resilient. Resilient, but not necessarily emotionally healthy, not necessarily flexible. It could be gritty, angry, but we do know they're more resilient. What we want to do when you get stuck in threat mode, create oscillations or resonance. You'll hear these flowing changes between those two systems. Think of HRV, V is variation. We are now looking at the relationship between the heart and the diaphragm. If you have a big, slow contraction of the diaphragm, air and blood come into the chest and move forward. So one basic element is this has to be diaphragmatic breathing. And you heard that over and over, can't be the upper chest. So if you want to move air and blood into the chest and move it forward, it's with the diaphragm. If you take five seconds to do that, you will speed up the heart rate and then you will slow it down, literally varying the heart rate real time. So when you take someone's heart rate, you, you take it for 15 seconds to get an average, right? Now, here's the nugget. If we look at the two of you and you both have heart rates of 60 at night, okay? And one of you varies between 58 and 62 with an average of 60. And the other varies throughout the night between 50 and 70 with the same average of 60. You with me? What do I know for sure? The person 50 to 70 is both physically and emotionally healthy. We know this for sure. Concussions will thrust people from 50 to 70 to 58 to 62. COVID infections can thrust you from high variability to low variability. All kinds of things can. So yes, we need people figuring out the causes and I figure out many, but there are some esoteric ones that are beyond me to figure out. And we just move forward with assessing this. Hypermobile females struggle to get back from the 58 to 62 to the 50 to 70. So concussions, Being bed bound for two weeks, incredibly fit and emotionally fit person goes to the moon for two weeks and comes back. They pass out every time they stand up. They went from here to here. Why? Right. So excellent. We can learn a lot from concussions and we can actually learn a lot from astronauts. Think of it as non-weight bearing bed rest. And they come back and they can't even stand up, many of them. And several things happen the actual size of the heart gets smaller, the actual blood volume is reduced, and the baroreceptor reflex gets impaired. That is the blood pressure, heart rate monitoring reflex. And that is the exact breathing practice I recommend is a baroreflex exercise program. So you hear me make a big deal about how to do the breathing, that it is without breath holds that it is challenging the barrow receptor, that it is the most studied breathing technique. When we thought five in, five out, no breath holds with diaphragmatic technique was unhealthy, look at Soviet cosmonauts and Soviet wrestlers, and not particularly wrestlers because I wrestled in college, but (laughs) Soviet wrestlers who dominated the world and Soviet cosmonauts were practicing this breathing technique because it was the most energy efficient Wait, but it also keeps the baroreceptor healthy so if those three things happen when you come back from visiting the moon for two weeks i'm sure you've heard of the levine protocol it's an exercise protocol for pots
1: no i haven't heard of it
2: it is for the hypermobile pots there are problems with it but it is founded on this notion that the heart gets smaller in two weeks but also can get bigger and if you get past this graded protocol Hopefully your listeners are not getting too upset with me right now because I'm going to answer their concern. If you get to the other end of the Levine protocol, you're doing great. However, 53% dropout rates, which is what all of you understand. You can't just prescribe a graded exercise program and think this is going to work. If you do get to the other side, you're going to do great. But what I'm trying to do is prevent all that dropout. So it has to be individualized.
1: So is the Levine protocol, is that graded exercise therapy?
2: Yes, it Ah, is a great And the point is to try and get your heart bigger. And then the other point is if you lose blood volume, that's why fluids are so essential. You need to have something to squeeze again. And then the third thing is if your baroreceptor reflex is impaired, well, one of the two essential components of what I do is a baroreceptor breathing exercise for several weeks before we even consider the six minutes of moderate recumbent bike, Does that help?
0: Yeah, it does. I'm going to just ask a couple of questions that I am mm-hmm. need clarification on. So the heart rate variability you're measuring is every time you take a breath in, your heart rate goes up. When you take a breath out, it should reduce. Now, when you talk about the nighttime HRV should be between 50-something. Bigger.
2: Let's just say bigger.
0: Is that measuring... Intake and outtake of breath, and then averaging it.
2: It's it's very complex.
0: We spoke a few weeks ago, and I downloaded that app that you suggested, the sleep app. My nighttime, not the HRV, just the heart rate, goes from 49 to 63. That's not a big change.
2: I was making fictitious examples to try and help it understand.
0: The reason I bring this up is because this fight or flight response that you're talking about, I will wake up sometimes in the night with my heart rate 90 to 100. But then that goes away and then I continue my sleep. But that's a big jump. That's not healthy. (laughs) So it doesn't make sense. You have many
2: different stages of sleep and some of them are sympathetic REM sleep. I would recommend when you wake up with a fast heart rate to do this very specific breathing practice to reduce your heart rate. When your diaphragm is helping your heart, the analogy I give, all right, so you wake up like this and your heart is a toddler in a swing and it's kicking its legs wildly, wanting to swing. You're going to decide to be the diaphragm. It's about timing, not breath holds, not being off with your timing. You're trying to do it with your diaphragm, five in, five out, and get a rhythm. And the diaphragm is now assisting the heart. So these are big excursions. When you do this resonance, these oscillations, That is inducing vagal tone. The brain will recognize the diaphragm is helping moving air and blood forward. I can slow the heart rate down. So it is the most rapid, healthy, inexpensive, evidence-based breathing practice that is parasympathetic to lower your heart rate. And if you are stuck in persistent sympathetic activation, you're more likely to wake up with a fast heart rate and struggle, you say that you can get out of it. Some people can't. So what would you do? You would try to help the heart, that toddler, by swinging with the diaphragm and calming the heart down and slowing it down and becoming more parasympathetic so you could fall back to sleep.
0: Right, but does that skew your overall score?
2: Absolutely, temporarily. But I'm looking at the whole... Whole night HRV average,
1: and it's the HRV average rather than the heart rate average. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. I, I want to know the relationship between the heart and the diaphragm, so I need to know the variation. Many things can be part of that. Your hydration status. Do you have hardened arteries from too many chips? Do you have overly flexible because you have hypermobility syndrome? I love this one HRV study that was about the French lockdown, they had an extremely strict 55-day lockdown where you even had to have a note from the government to be able to walk your dog, and they checked people's HRV. Now, this isn't about COVID infection. This is just about the stress of lockdown. 80% of people's HRV went down. 20% of people went up. So environmental factors, everything can affect HRV, your stress, et cetera. Sadly, I have nurses that got COVID and their lives and their careers are destroyed by it. Me, I was not a dry cleaner or a restaurant owner worried about my livelihood. Both of those scenarios, their HRV goes down. Me. I'm well-to-do. Now I have time to work out. Now I have time to sleep. My income is going to go down, but not so much that I can't provide for my family. So my HRV is going to go up during a lockdown. So it includes stressors. And you have to be careful with HRV not to overread it because it is this ultra sensitive biomarker of whole health, including what's going on with you in the outside world i don't know what your hydration status was when you gave me that example so you can't get too bogged down on analyzing small changes i'm looking for big trends and so for me some of the rules are is you don't compare to anybody else you don't compare to any other device these device makers will change what they do they will make it opaque but if you do things regularly meaning We're getting the whole night's HRV and we only compare to your baseline and we don't compare to normative data. And now an event happens. There's another HRV study where HRV goes down for three days with the COVID vaccination. The people who I believe who have problems with COVID vaccinations have a stickier autonomic nervous system and then they get stuck in a low HRV. So I think in one of your podcasts, you mentioned that your HRV or heart rate was really good for a long period of time and then it dropped. Sometimes you have an answer, sometimes you don't. But when you see trends, that's what I'm looking for. Personal trends. We're gonna analyze it, figure it out. What is it? Are you wasting your energy trying to win a texting argument? (laughs) I, I mean, and I have everybody remember what I call the two and 20 rule. When you get thrust into this, your brain is in overdrive. Your brain is 2% of body weight and can burn 20 or more percent of the available carbohydrates. A healthy chess champion can lose 10 pounds in a weekend tournament. Sounds like a great weight loss strategy. But when you're stuck there and you destroy parasympathetic sleep for weeks and months because you're playing chess all night, it changes your hormones. The inflammatory biomarkers Your T cells don't look quite as nice as they would for Dr. Leonardi. We're trying to figure out why are there drops in this value? How can we push some exercise without it dropping and titrate the exercise to your individual life, physiology, height. A five foot five inch woman has a smaller heart physically than a five foot five inch man. So that's one reason. The Levine Protocol is mostly based on the size of the heart. It gets smaller after two weeks, and after the protocol, the heart is bigger. Well, if you're starting out with a smaller heart, maybe that's one of many reasons why women have more problems with this than men in general. There's many potential factors there.
1: So much to look at, though, or consider. fascinating. There are so many variables that you've spoken about, so many different variables that it really does show there's not one, one system that's going to work for everyone. You've got to tailor it individually.
2: But we are targeting the right thing.
1: You've hit on, and
0: it's been repeated by other doctors, that HRV may be the key. It is. Not to fixing us, but in order to tell us what's going on.
2: Well, it will guide us. The essence of hope is the sense that you can control something And the other is that it is a reproducible process. So I won't make any claims on outcomes. I may not be able to figure out the reason for the HRV drop, but we have a process and that process is teaching you how to track it, number one, and how do we make it better? And that would be HRV resonant baroreceptor breathing would be the starting point. So when people modify the things I do, they have to remember I'm talking about a universal starting point for rehabilitation. And I believe the universal starting point is one, let's track the right thing. Nocturnal HRV as a measure of non-restorative sleep. If that gets trashed for three nights in a row, it's a I'd like to say it's a flashing yellow light. It doesn't mean you don't take your kids to school or do that job interview. But it says today is a high risk day. Be very careful. It's up to you to decide if you think going to the amusement park is necessary or not, right? You're going to have to make those decisions, but it, it brings about more uh, certainty. It's better to know that today's a high risk day than not. And you can allocate your decision. If it's not a high risk day, maybe today it's okay to do the sixth minute. If that's possible on, on a trip, but if you're below. That's the key here. If you're below your baseline three nights in a row, I would say, don't drop out. Don't crash. Let's put it off another day. Hydrate.
1: One question that I wanted to ask from what you previously said, you said you're not to measure it against anyone else. You're not to measure it against other parameters. You measure it against your own baseline. Given that we start this assessment of our nocturnal HRV with our long COVID baseline,
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you call that baseline? We don't have what we were when we were healthy.
2: Right. Someday we might have those numbers. Your kids might. And we'll we'll be able to see these precipitous drops. You are where you are. So let's get a baseline where you are now. This is, I would say, the most non-standardized part that I'm still working on. What is your baseline? But loosely, I'll do something like, Let's get you a decent device or you have a decent device. Let's look at a couple weeks of your data.
1: And is that just around the wrist device you need around the chest?
2: Obviously, ECG is, is better than light sensors and multiple channels is better than one channel. So the problem with the light sensors, the wrist and finger, is the data is terrible with movement. But that's okay. I don't want you quoting me any daytime HRV numbers anyway. I'm interested in nighttime. So the light sensors are decent enough at night because you don't move all that much. Acquiring the data, they'll tell you there are some intricacies, there are, but acquiring the data, we've had light pulse oximetry for 50 years or more. So acquiring the data is not the magic. It's not going down rabbit holes. I'm not going to be accused of of liking any devices over others. I'll just say (laughs) negative comments about all of them. So Fitbit and Apple, to get nighttime HRV trends, you'll have to download another app. Garmin, they're good, but they bury their data in body battery and stress scores, and you can't even find the HRV. Okay, It's really frustrating. Some of the other devices will give the data, but they don't display it in a way I would display it. I take people where they're at, and after two weeks of data, uh, we'll try and come up with a baseline. That baseline can change. It can improve, and it can get worse. Uh, So we have to be able to adapt. But once we get a baseline, that's a lot of heartbeats at night. So that's a fair amount of data, right? This isn't two or three minutes of heartbeats several hours. So that's a lot of data points. If you travel or are dehydrated or you're in conflict with a friend or a family for days, your heart and your diaphragm will be stuck in threat mode and you will do less brain rinsing and after 3 nights of that, it's going to start to affect. And so you need to be careful. And with my basketball players, I like to say one year, you know, 3 people dropped off. One Was a freshman knucklehead who wasn't hydrating. Another senior his parents were getting a divorce. Another one failing calculus. It can be anything. So you have to be a little humble to try and figure it out, but not overthink it. But if it's simply hydration, well, that's a nice solution. If it's an avoidable argument, that's a nice solution. If it's financial distress, well, that's unfortunately part of the equation. So it's ultra sensitive, but not specific. That's what frustrates so many people and clinicians.
0: Um, But what's really nice about those things is that they're cheap and easily accessible.
2: Yeah, well, I'm in a downtown clinic as well. And uh, it is a major barrier uh, for many of my patients. They get very frustrated with me. But that is one of the things I'm trying to prove is that I should be able to write a prescription And get decent devices, both for the heart rate variability, biofeedback, and for the tracking, and have remote coaches. That's the other thing I'm trying to implement. And unload my knowledge so that coaches can... Can
1: guide people.
2: Exactly. In between our visits, when we might make a medication modification in between. I need my patients to have access to two devices that will eventually be one device accessible to remote coaching. And that's actually one of the studies we did. We showed that using a wearable monitor that you can learn the breathing technique with a remote coach and reduce anxiety and improve your HRV. So
0: I actually wasn't even thinking about the device as cheap. I was thinking it's cheap to get access to water and learn how to breathe properly.
2: (laughs) Right. Well so you can start the breathing with with a clock with a second hand. Five seconds ish in five seconds ish I say ish because everyone's resonance where you're swinging the baby is a little bit different, but you can do that with a clock with a second hand.
1: So basically we are saying that we can sort out long COVID with 10 seconds of breathing.
2: No, (laughs) sort out.
0: That was a swing and a miss, Emily.
2: Uh, I'm saying it's a template, a, a decent starting point, right? Can I ask you a question with all the people you've entered? Do you have a starting point? You've heard now many people speak. Is there a starting point for long COVID
0: rehabilitation? Better sleep, I think, is a general,
1: right? Better sleep and for me, breathing and meditation
2: Right. So I'm putting a objective evidence based template to both of those. I'm saying let's track your physiological sleep recovery and let me teach you how to track it and make decisions off of it. And then the breathing, I'm going to be very specific. Meditation is many beautiful things, but you're stuck in the surf and you want to get out of the surf. And if I hand you weights to get stronger, that isn't going to work. I want to teach you how to body surf. So synchronizing, getting that baby swinging is a priority over strengthening. So one of my hurdles is the Navy SEALs, they have box breathing. Five, hold your breath. Four, hold your breath. Four, hold your breath. Andrew Weil, excellent whole health physician. He has four, seven, eight breathing. That has breath holds.
1: A lot of it has breath holds.
2: I Here's one of the insights. And please call me out in five or 10 years. I'm saying breath holds will be eliminated as the starting point. They are important later, but the synchronizing is what's important right now. The timing of that is a priority over strengthening and breath holds. The synchronizing, the resonance, will emerge as the starting breathing practice If you're struggling with sitting with your thoughts, if you're struggling with breath holds, let's just do the physiological resonance that is the most evidence-based breathing practice. It is the most parasympathetic breathing practice. I know where things are going because I've seen 25 years of patients of every kind and every level and every demographic. So I think I'm targeting the two right things, non-restorative sleep and how to create parasympathetic resonance.
0: But the focus essentially is the brain.
2: The coupling between the body and the brain, the neurovascular coupling. Yeah, Sure, you can say the brain is stuck in threat mode, but it's really the relationship between. So the brain is this spongy material inside of a, a fixed skull. And when you're in threat mode, and you're burning your brain at 2 and 20, really hot, asking for blood, pressure increases, and the brain has a pulsation to it, believe it or not. It has oscillations, and when pressure is increased, and we know that a lot of fibromyalgia, I mean, CFS patients have mild increases in intracranial pressure, you will reduce CSF production and CSF flow. The main driver of CSF flow is inspiration is diaphragmatic movement creates pressure changes to create these sort of resonance so that the brain isn't static and increased pressure so it is the relationship between the brain and the body for healing yes neurologic and obviously my colleague the autonomic neurologist he thinks it's all in the brain
0: well which is what i was driving at really
2: <laughs> right and and i would say no it is whole health, the relationship between the brain and the body and the whole health biomarker. I think any of the people you interview, that HRV is the best whole health biomarker. So let's tag that. And when are we going to tag it? Well, how about when you're supposed to be parasympathetic, when you're replenishing, when you're repairing? So I think nocturnal HRV trends are the best whole health biomarker and we can track those remotely and teach you remotely and that's the hope i think five and ten years from now
0: do you use any pharmacological assistance or drugs as i like to call them
2: (laughs) absolutely absolutely uh but again i prioritize physiological medications as i would say obviously they're all biochemical but ones that improve that physiological state as opposed to, you know, serotonins and dopamines and, and, and things like that. Mine is more about a medication that may help your sympathetic and parasympathetic systems uh, physiologically.
0: So many doctors have prescribed melatonin for us.
2: Okay. Melatonin is fine. Uh, I would like ideally that you use it three or four nights a week and not every night because your body may stop producing melatonin. That's my only reservation with melatonin. Many different things that work intermittently, Yeah, your body will adapt to anything. I would rather do a physiological approach. One of the medications that I will use to help people sleep Is a muscle relaxer. It's actually a cousin of clonidine without the hypotensive effects. It's called tizanidine, and it can make people drowsy without being cloudy-headed. I like you don't have any problems coming off of it. It's not like a tricyclic antidepressant, the amitriptyline, where you're changing receptors and things like that. This is mild enough that it can help people fall asleep and stay asleep. And I like its mechanism of action.
1: What about some of the antihistamines? I think I don't yep. know what it's sold as in the states, but the nitol here is basically an antihistamine, yep. isn't it? What's yep. your thoughts on those as a sleeping aid?
2: I will tell some people to keep rotating with innocuous things, maybe melatonin once a night, maybe a Benadryl, the antihistamine, maybe, and and that way your body doesn't get too used to anything because it will adapt, and then now you're just starting adding to add things. So you, if you are doing okay. Maybe try so that you have these as backups. But my, your first strategy should be breathing before sleep, five in, five out, to reduce your heart rate, increase your HRV. That's number one. It's the healthiest, evidence-based number one. Number two, you could try a cooling cap. What's a cooling cap? So this you <laughs> it's might a love. cold hat. <laughs> they are amazing. Is it really? W- yes. Again, I like safe, evidence-based things. What do you want to do before you sleep? Your heart rate wants to go down. Your temperature wants to go down. Uh, your HRV wants to go up. So the first thing is to calm your body down with your diaphragm, with your breathing, number one. If your brain is running too hot, you can cool it down. You can reduce the pressure in your skull. And it's like a neoprene knee sleeve. You throw it in the freezer. You pull it out. Let it warm up for about five minutes. You literally place it on your head. I
1: didn't know this actually existed.
2: If you're sensitive, I would try it with the refrigerator first. And it might be a lot at first. But there is 10, 20 minutes that are glorious. There's a little light compression. And it's cooling. I like what cooling does physiologically, right? When you have a severe traumatic brain injury, one of the treatments is immediate cooling. So cooling makes sense. And it's simple. And it's safe. And believe it or not, it won't shift your thoughts, but it will slow them down. If you are stuck on something before you go to sleep, doing your breathing can simmer your body down. Cooling cap can simmer the pace of your thoughts. And then maybe you're going to listen to a boring story. I believe in boring stories at night, not political things. But
1: I used to have to do that as a kid. I used to listen to the same audio book over and over and over again. Perfect. And now the thing that I found is I do yoga nidra. I do a yoga nidra in the day that actually helps me get through the day. But at night I do yoga nidras that are really, really familiar to me, which I think has that same thing. So I'm doing my breathing at the same time as having that repetitive thing on in my head.
2: For people who struggle with PTSD, I have a different approach. I say during the day, I want you to work on courage. I want you to sit with your breath. I want you to tone your body down with your diaphragm while you deal with difficult thoughts that that are intrusive. So I want you to get the skill of not always avoiding thoughts. But at night, absolutely. Uh, Distraction is the way to go because you need to fall asleep. It is not the time to solve all your problems at two o'clock in the morning thinking about them. So that's a rule of thumb. Distraction is, is fully appropriate at night. And then intermittently at the daytime, learn to sit with your thoughts while you, and the verb here, right? Avoidance is a good strategy. Distraction is a good strategy, right? If you have an alcohol problem, avoiding a bar, it's probably a good idea. But if you get too good at avoiding everything, you actually subconsciously become afraid of dealing with your thoughts. You do want to be able to sit with your thoughts and have a confidence one of the things you learn from meditation is to be able to sit and simmer the physiology down while you're dealing with intrusive, hypervigilant, sympathetic threat thoughts that can destroy your sleep.
0: Yeah. How many long COVID patients are you currently seeing at this center? Are you seeing an increase? Is it like exponentially exploding?
2: I'm overwhelmed. So I.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I've, uh, we up. have a lot of patients with POTS, right? I mean, CFS, we have a lot of concussions. So it's it's hard for me to gauge. I know I'm overwhelmed. So it's hard for me to gauge what's going on out there, but it seems like a lot to me because everybody's trying to get in.
1: I just wanted to touch on one thing. And that is, I believe a lot of your work is to do with pain perception. Is that right? Is managing your hrv can alter your perception of pain is that part of the strategy
2: if you can reduce hypervigilance uh, i like the verb defuel if you can physiologically defuel your hypervigilance you can improve coping so i'm not going to necessarily say perception i do believe if i get your hrv better over three months of nights or prevent crashes for three months, your parasympathetic depletion will improve and yes, your pain will improve. So that will take three months. In the moment, I think you feeling confident capable of defueling hypervigilance can improve your coping. One of the perceptual changes I want to say about chronic pain is everybody thinks it's an overstimulation of the pain. But let's think about it. If non-restorative sleep is the key feature of the decades of fibromyalgia, isn't it really parasympathetic depletion and the nervous system is depleted of nutrients or function or vascular flow? So How would we repair that? We would repair it with three months of sleep. When people talk about pain, they will talk about an over-amplified nervous system. So what's the next logical thing? Let's dampen it with all these dampening medications. Well, what if we think about it as parasympathetic depletion? Now we're targeting the right thing. Yes, we can prescribe things to dampen because what's happening is you have a lower threshold of pain. It's not necessarily that the fire has been higher. It's that you've lowered the threshold for pain perception. Why do you have more pain in the evening? The pain didn't go up. You're settling down for sleep and you're lowering your thresholds. So I want to flip the conversation on pain. It's really parasympathetic depletion. It's really about unhealthy Thresholds. So let's make them healthier. Three months of sleep, I believe, will improve your pain because you're improving parasympathetic depletion.
0: So I'm a great believer in the body repairing itself, and I I think that long COVID is is tricky because you know we have all these different symptomology. We have you know MCAS people who suddenly have got diabetes. They've got brain damage. They've got problems with their heart. Like me, Emily's got problems with her brain.
1: (laughs) I don't have any problems with my brain because I've not had any scans or tests to show it. Okay. (laughs) and
0: uh, for We often joke that we should be on an island somewhere to recover for a year without any additional injury because reinfection is a big risk to people with long COVID. But I like this idea that we can repair ourselves. I'm just dubious that we can avoid additional injury.
2: And fit it into our modern life. Right. If we had the will and the resources to change your external things, uh, and we sent you on that island with a recumbent bike, and I could do a telehealth visit with you regularly and coax you through uh, six minutes, you know.
1: Mm. Yeah, we're up for it.
2: Right. And you didn't have the water pipes breaking or whatever problems i think you can't but uh so i don't want to say that i have the answer to the healing but i have a starting point and a method that is safe and evidence-based and i think people are going to come to it because it's so logical but once we have a logical starting point and template now we can start saying well what is the best situation or medication in this instance in you and so that's what I'm offering is a starting point.
0: That's a brilliant place to end on.
1: Yeah. The starting point's the place to end. <laughs> what I really loved about this interview is last week's episode was very science fascinating, but. It was not necessarily anything that is within our control, whereas I feel like this interview really does give people some practical advice and some guidance that we as normal people can take perhaps to our medical provider or various clinics that you could actually get some kind of tangible direct benefit, even just doing some breathing exercises.
0: Absolutely. Last week's episode with Bupesh Prosty was amazing in that we might finally get a biomarker and have a diagnosis. But he was very clear, even with that bit of information, it's not going to fix us. And so things that Ron Garbo can teach us are still 100% valid, and we need to know them in order to help ourselves get better.
1: Anything we can do day to day to make these, particularly on the bad days, to make this a tiny bit better and any knowledge that we can share from these people so we're going to keep mixing it up between heavy science and really practical advice for people
0: Yep, yeah, I think that's that's all we can do
1: we really are doing our best here within the capacity and the limitations that we have we are still doing this as a team of two people and trying to get the best interviews so forgive our limited capacity we will try to get transcriptions for some of these interviews out at some stage we do hear that some long covid patients find it difficult to listen to these but
0: but we are also long covid patients i know mean, people have to remember that
1: please be kind <laughs> we really really are fighting to bring this to you
0: and we're also perfectionists so if we can do one thing well we'll do it well and not a poor version of this on a different platform
1: and we are perfectionists and we are journalists as well so when we don't put out a transcription that has just been auto-generated it's because it's not correct yeah we want to put out work that we have vetted and that we consider to be of a standard to be helpful to you
0: yeah and so we put out this podcast with our own time and energy (laughs)
1: <laughs> or lack of energy.
0: <laughs> yeah, Or whilst also living with long COVID and living with a family. And I'd say with our children, we are the main carers because our husbands are extremely busy and are away a lot
1: of the time. Yeah, <laughs> solo carers a lot of the time.
0: So we're glad that people appreciate the podcast, but be kind.
1: Please be kind. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.